So this book right here, I've pretty much given my whole adult life to studying it, pouring myself over it, preaching it more, more weeks than not. And many of you guys are very, have done very similar things. Maybe you're not a preacher who's been speaking out of the scriptures for, you know, decade and a half, but many of us have been Christians for a long, long time, and many of us have been familiar with this book for some decades, right? Like probably three, four decades, probably five, six decades, probably seven decades. There's, there's people who have been diving into this book for decades in this room. And we build this familiarity with this book, with this library of books, I should say. We build this kind of friendship with the Bible, right? We're, 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 we're beyond acquaintances with the Bible. It's like a member of our family. It's something that we've struggled with and that we've kind of, we feel very, very secure about our understanding of this book, many of us. Some of you are here today and you're like, I've, I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm glad you're here. But for others of us, we're very, very familiar with this book. And I want to tell you, I know in my world, that sense of comfort and knowledge and familiarity even, it can be a very dangerous thing. It can actually keep us from understanding this book. That's the, one of the ironic things about engaging with the scriptures. The more you think you know the scriptures sometimes, the more you're fooling yourself. See, we often approach these, this book and the books in this library like, like they were written, dropped out of heaven just for us in our time, space, moment, right? I never heard a sermon growing up talking about the original context or that this is a 2,000-year-old book written in a language that doesn't even exist anymore today. That would have brought up some complexity and some questions. But that's what we're doing when we engage with the Bible. And see, that familiarity can keep us from digging in deeper, right? So what we're going to do this morning is what I try to do most weeks, but really it's much, much needed this morning because if I were to tell you that we're going to be thinking about for the next, I'll try to keep myself to about 35 minutes. If, if I were to tell you that we're going to spend the next 35 minutes talking about the Jesus encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, most of you would be like, great, I know that story. Jesus reveals himself to this Samaritan woman as the Messiah. He tells her about all his, he, he just knows her background and her, the, the, the skeletons in her closet. He brings them up. She, he, he reveals himself as Messiah. She evangelizes her whole town. Praise the Lord. High five. And yes, that's true. It's all true. That's what the story is. But man, friends, there's so much more to this story. 
So much, in fact, that we're going to think, I think we're going to spend three weeks on this story. The Samaritan woman at the well. This week, today, we're going to be digging into that context that I was talking about. The, the Bible, this story happened in a completely different culture. It happened, like I said, 2,000 years ago in, the, in a different area of the, of the globe where they had very different cultural customs. They had their religious world. We think we understand the ancient Jewish world. We don't. We think we understand the nuances to stories like this. We don't. But we're going to, so today we're going to spend our time today digging into the cultural and religious undercurrent of this story, the foundations of this story. And we're going to think about this morning, we're going to think about how Jesus broke some major, major rules in this story. This is an offensive, if you would have, if, if, if you guys, if we could turn us into first century Palestinian people. And by Palestine, I mean just that's the region. If we could turn ourselves into the early church, this story was downright offensive and scandalous in its day. But we don't get that because we don't live in that world. So we're going to try to get into that world a little bit and understand some things so that we can see how Jesus broke three major rules in this story. We're going to think about maybe how that, what that has to teach us. And then we're going to see a parallel that it seems like the author, John, is trying to, to show us at the end of this time. Then next week, or two weeks, I should say, actually, we're going to be looking, unpacking some of the rich theology that Jesus and this Samaritan woman who remains unnamed, we, we don't get to know her name, which is not uncommon for ancient Near Eastern religious, well, what's, what's unique is that there's a woman in it, but the fact that she's unnamed is very normal. We're going to dig into, in a couple of weeks, we're going to dig into the theological ramifications and backgrounds of their conversation. And then we're going to actually have a larger conversation about what this text might mean for us today. What this text, what this story, this encounter of Jesus, this pivotal conversation, what it might mean for us in the church today. In, in, in particular, what it might mean for women in leadership in the church and what it might mean for men and women to partner together in ministry, in church, in the church world together. This story is a pivotal one. It's an important one. I put a star by it when I'm thinking about preaching through the Gospel of John. So let's get into it. Let's just begin reading. If you like reading out of a Bible, there's probably one in front of you in the seat. If not, there's one on the screen or you have your devices. There's all sorts of possibilities. This is John 4, verse 1. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. So we're, I kind of skipped over the last half of the, the John 3, where it's going back into the narrative of John the Baptist, partially because Shelley did a really good job of preaching through John the Baptizer uh, in John 1, also because... I just chose to skip over it. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing that I'm trying to avoid. It's just I, I wanted to spend three weeks on this one and don't need to on the second half of John 3. Study yourself. We can talk about it if you want. John 4, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So this is interesting. There's this kind of like this 
competition seemingly happening between John the Baptist and Jesus. And John the Baptist removes himself from the conversation and says, he must increase, I must decrease. And it's interesting also that the, the author of the Gospel of John makes a point to say that Jesus didn't do the baptizing, it was his disciples. We don't have time to get into that. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Judea to Galilee. Simple journey. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now most scholars would say he didn't have to. There's nothing in this text that says that there was this urgency that he had to get from Judea to Galilee because Lazarus was dying or somebody else was dying or he had to do something. There's nothing in the text that would say he had to do it except for he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus was tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Jesus engaged with her. So much beneath the surface of just that one sentence. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, For you, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that's interesting. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? What are you talking about? Are you seeing the parallels between the conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation with the Samaritan woman already? Jesus is speaking in these metaphors. The woman's not quite yet tracking with him. You have nothing to draw, draw water with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, before we get all spiritual and talk about the living water that Jesus has to give, this right here, Jesus just simply saying, will you give me a drink? That's an interesting thing. It's this, it's likely John telling us Jesus was really a human. See, in the days when the Gospel of John was written in the late first century, there was great debate about who is Jesus, what's the nature of Jesus. He was a person that we saw walking around and we hung out with him and we, we touched him and we, we, you know, we saw him do human things. But then we also saw him come back to life and then ascend into heaven and disappear. Who in the world was it? And so it was, the debate was, is Jesus just a person, a prophet, really good person from God? Was Jesus... A spiritual aberration. He wasn't, he, if he was God, he couldn't have been human to profane. God couldn't profane God's self by being a human being. And John's very clear from the first chap, from the first verses of his gospel, Jesus was God, right? The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word was with God and the word was God, right? So John's already established Jesus was God. And now he's saying, and he also was this dude who, on a hot day, 
got really thirsty and needed a drink of water. Jesus was a human being. Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water again will be thirsty, or who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I have to give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and don't have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. Very strategic. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. This is so much religious and cultural background going on in this conversation. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's scandalous to both Samaritans and Jews. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. We'll think about that more next time. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, or Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Let's just pause there. Now, we're going to think about, like I said earlier, three rules that Jesus broke. Three very important rules. Some of a cultural rule, a couple religious rules, a couple of just taboos that, became, that, were, that would have been offensive and stuck out like a sore thumb to the ancient hearers and readers of this text. So the first rule that Jesus breaks is very obvious because the Samaritan woman points it out to him. Jesus says, will you give me water? Will you give me a drink? I'm thirsty. And the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, most of us know this, but it's worth digging in a little bit to think a little bit more about how much Jews and Samaritans hated one another because they hated one another. We know how unique this story is because of historians and ancient Jewish historians like a man named Josephus who would, who is, who's told us Jewish people would regularly add days to their journey. If they were going from Judea to Galilee, you would choose a, a normal Jewish person, especially religious people with a religious leader in their group like Jesus and his disciples, they would normally choose to add days to their journey. And by journey, I don't mean putting around in your car. I mean, they're walking, the miles, and they would choose to add days and miles to their journey just so they didn't have to defile themselves by stepping into Samaria. They would normally choose to, to, to do anything. The only way, Josephus has kind of said, to, uh, told us in history, that the only way that a Jew would go through Samaria is if there was an urgent thing. Literally, somebody died and I have to walk through Samaria, but I'm going to have to clean myself and do all these religious ceremonies and rituals to clean myself afterwards because just stepping foot onto Samarian, Samaritan land would make you unclean. And then engaging with a Samaritan person and asking them for water and drinking that water would make you unbelievably unclean. 
And we say words like unclean, and they just kind of, we're, no, we're used to these words. But when I say unclean, friends, I mean that they believed that if you stepped foot into Samaria and you received water from a Samaritan, much less a sinful Samaritan woman, we'll go into all three of those words, you literally couldn't be in the presence of God. You were now dirty in the eyes of God. You're rejected from the community of Israel. You're rejected from the covenant community until you can go through these religious rituals to cleanse yourself and be able to come before God again just because you stepped foot into this nation, just because you engaged with a Samaritan person. This is how much. Let me read for you. This is from the wisdom of Sirach. This is in what we call the Apocrypha, the Catholic Bible. It was the Christian Bible for the first 1,500 years of the church's existence, just so you know. But this is just the Jewish, Jewish teachings, rabbinical teachings that show us just the way Jewish people thought about Samaritans. This says, there are two nations that I detest, and a third that does not even deserve to become, be called a nation. These are the Edomites, the, inhabitant, the inhabitants of the Philistine cities, and the stupid Samaritans. The word of the Lord. That's literally what the Jewish, ancient Jewish people thought, that God said, I hate these three nations. In the last one, I shouldn't even mention it in this holy scriptures. The stupid Samaritans. You talk about a special kind of hatred, friends. This is what they believed was God-endorsed and inspired hatred. That's some deep stuff right there. They literally thought that God looked at Samaritans and said, you stupid Samaritans, I don't even want to mention that name. In these times, ancient Jewish people would, there was, there was a famous massacre that happened in, right before Jesus was, was alive. And Jew, the Jewish people blamed the Samaritans on it. It was a regular thing that they would do. If there was anything terrible happened to the people of Israel, a lot of times they would blame a, a Samaritan or the Samaritans. Now that sounds crazy, but we do that all the time. Matter of fact, just a little example. 2009. I know some of you are like seven. It's a joke about how old I am. Don't worry. In 2009, there was um, a group of Lutherans, ELCA Lutherans, who were meeting in St. Paul, Minnesota, I believe, in the ELCA church and talking about ordain, whether or not to ordain LGBTQ leaders. Now, yes, I know the weight of what I just said is like, oh, what is Randy going to say? So they decided to ordain gay or lesbian clergy. And then five tornadoes came into town that same day, toppled the steeple of that church where they were, where they were gathering. Did all sorts of other things in the Twin Cities. It was a, five tornadoes. It wasn't just this church steeple, but it was serious. A conservative, evangelical very prominent church leader, who I'm not going to mention his name, blogged that next week about how seems like this, 
this tornado has happened because it was the judgment of God towards these gays, towards the ELCA who are ordaining these dirty people, LGBTQ people. That's what this sounds like, friends. The insanity to say that five tornadoes in the area happened because of the ELCA's decision. But that's what we do, right? Oh, that disease is the gay disease. It's God's judgment on the people. Or, or oh, that's the dirty Muslims. Of course, God's judgment is coming on them. We do it all the time. This is how the Samaritans were seen by God's people, by the Jewish people. It's their fault. They're stupid. As a matter of fact, in fact, God commands us to hate them, to stay away from them. So this is the backdrop of this text, of this encounter where this woman even, as Jesus comes to her and asks for a drink of water, and she's like, what are you doing, buddy? Do you not know how these things work in our religious world? God has told you not to talk to me. And in fact, God in the flesh comes to planet Earth and says, I know what the rabbinical writings say. I know what the scriptures say. I'm going to break the rules. See, Jesus was confronted with, do I break the rules or do I engage with this woman? And Jesus just didn't care. Jesus broke that religious rule and didn't give one rip about it. It's interesting. That's the first rule that Jesus broke. Second rule that Jesus broke. Did I mention that she was a sinful woman? We don't even have to go that much into it, but let's do it anyways. This is... Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I don't have to get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And he told her, Go and call your husband and come back. And she said, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you have had five husbands, and the man you are now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Now, five husbands. We live in 2021 America. And even in our backslidden culture, right? Even in this kind of dirty culture that we live in, promiscuous culture where anything goes, you talk to a woman who's been married five times and you're like, girl, let's figure some things out. This, this is an unhealthy pattern, right? Like that, and if you've been married multiple times, I'm not trying to point you out. I'm just saying this is in our religious world. This would be uncomfortable. Like I, I'm, I'm going to get married for the fifth time. And then, and then she's living with a guy who isn't her husband, and Jesus points it out. Now, again, we live in 2021, Christian world. What? 22. 22. Sorry. She's the worst. <laughs> we all missed a year. It's true. We live in 2022, America. And cohabitating isn't the big deal it once was, but we still are... Religious people, there's a big church, way bigger than ours, just down the road, who will not officiate weddings for people who are cohabitating. They think it's too sinful or too taboo, they won't do it. 
I know because we've gotten those couples who have said, hey, that church won't marry us, will you? This is 2021, friends. God. (laughs) This is becoming very embarrassing. Are you going to believe anything I have to say? This is 2022. And it's still kind of this taboo to be cohabitating. You might be cohabitating here today. I'm not saying anything about your situation. I'm just pointing out, how taboo do you think this would have been 2,000 years ago in this very strict religious culture? A woman married five times. Yes, 2022, Sadie. A woman married five times, living with a person who isn't her husband. This woman would have been obviously seen as dirty and sinful. As a matter of fact, she had to go draw water from the well at noon because she was most likely rejected by the other ones. No, uh, the other woman, no person would want to go in the heat of the day in this desert, desert climate and go in the middle of the day when the sun's shining the hottest and draw water from a well. None of us have ever done it, but it's really hard work. And we know in this culture that women would go together to get to the well in the morning, in the cool of the day, to get the, draw their water for the day. This woman couldn't go with the other woman in the morning because why? She was rejected by the other woman. She's married five times and living with somebody who wasn't her husband. That, friends, was scandalous. Now I could go into real detail about how sexual sin and impurity in these days, the, the minutia of how cautious these people were about their sexual purity for a woman. Not about a man. Men could do a lot of things and be okay. But women... I could tell you stories, but there's children present about just how seriously they took a woman's purity in this culture. It was everything. It was what she had to give to a man. And this woman had completely abused that, was rejected by the other woman in her culture, in her town, had to come all by herself in the heat of the day to draw water because she was rejected by the other woman in this, in this area, in this is the woman that Jesus comes to and says, hey, would you give me a drink of water? This is the person that Jesus engages with, a Samaritan. He never should have been there, nor should he ever have engaged with her, but especially this sinful Samaritan who was dirty and unclean and rejected. And Jesus goes to her because why? Jesus doesn't care. Jesus doesn't operate by our religious rules. Jesus is breaking these religious rules. It's very interesting. Third religious rule that Jesus broke, let's get into that last one. The disciples tell us what, that, what the rule is. This is a cultural rule more than a religious rule. Just then in verse 27, just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking to a woman. That, that, that's, that's such a benign little statement, but it means so much. See, because men in this culture 
would never dream of talking to a woman in public. Never. Completely breaking the rules. I mean, let's go to, again, the wisdom of Sirach in the, in the Apocrypha, in the Catholic Bible. Let's take a look at what Sirach, I think it's 9, has to say. Listen to the way that Sirach 9 is talking about woman. Do not be jealous of your beloved wife, for you may thereby, thereby encourage her to cause you harm. Let no woman gain power over you. See, the scriptures are just written for men. Let no, one, no woman gain power over you and thereby trample underfoot your strength. This is not a joke. Do not approach a loose woman lest you become entangled in her snares, breaking religious rules. Do not dally with a singer lest you be trapped by her wiles. Do not harbor lustful thoughts against a virgin or you may incur punishment on account of her. Do not give yourself to prostitutes lest you, lest you suffer the loss of your inheritance. Do not let your gaze stray through the streets of a city or wander around its deserted areas. Turn, your, turn, turn away your eyes from a comely woman and do not stare at the beauty of another's wife. Many have been destroyed as the result of a woman's beauty which causes passion to flare up like fire. Never dine with a married woman or drink or, or join her to drink some wine, lest you allow your heart to succumb to her, and in your passion plunge to your destruction. Do you see the way that this religious culture, these ancient Jewish people, were taught to engage with women or not? Stay away because it's going to be dangerous for you. Like we could preach a whole sermon on the way this ancient religious culture saw women and treated women. I'm not going to go there right now. It's very obvious. But it, was, it would have been unheard of for a man to engage with a woman publicly. It just didn't happen. I mean, even still to this very day, we have right now happening, in, do you know what's happening in Iran? In Iran? A woman was killed by the morality police in Iran for not wearing a head covering. Just, I don't know, two weeks ago? And now there's women protesting left and right, trying to overthrow things and tr create a new day for women in Iran because they're burning their hijabs and they're, they're cutting their hair in public, doing scandalous things. This is in the year 2022. <laughs> a Jewish man would have never chosen to defile himself by talking to a woman. Not much less a Samaritan woman, and much less a sinful Samaritan woman. But guess what? Jesus didn't care. Jesus didn't care what was written in the scriptures. Jesus didn't care what was written in the, book of, in the wisdom of Sirach. Jesus didn't care about what the religious customs and rules were. Jesus didn't care about the cultural customs and rules. Jesus didn't care about any of it. All he cared about was dignifying this marginalized and rejected woman and revealing himself as Messiah to her. Now, this should mean something for us, right? Like, this should impact the way we see our spirituality and our Christianity, I think. Here's two, just two things that I want to highlight about what this might mean for our Christianity. Here's the obvious question. Should be obvious. Who's your Samaritan? Who's your sinful Samaritan woman that you feel like you have righteous 
judgment and anger towards? Who is it for you that you think that God actually really doesn't like as well and likes that you don't like them as well? Who is it? I can be, I don't like saying certain things, but I'm almost certain every single one of us in this room has that person or people group that's unclean, that's dirty, that's disgusting, that represents everything that, that stands against the gospel of Christ, everything that stands against your values, your worldview, the way you see things. Who is it for you? couple, maybe a decade ago, we would have said Muslims. Maybe still some of us have issues. For many of us, it might be the LGBTQ community, trans people. People who affirm trans or gay people. Maybe it's, maybe it's conservative Christians for you, the fundamentalists the people who say that God caused five tornadoes to happen because a denomination chose to, to ordain gay people. Maybe those are the ones that get under your skin. That's mine. I'll just be fully transparent. Maybe it's left-wing, just foaming at the mouth liberals. Maybe it's January 6th denying Trump supporting Republicans. Maybe that's it for you. Who is it? Who is it for you? Once you've come to that realization, I've got a Samaritan in my world. I've got that sinful Samaritan woman. She exists, that, that exists in my life. Now I think we can get somewhere now that we're admitting that. And I think that Jesus is asking us to repent of that. And I want to tell you, repentance, by repentance, I don't mean right now let's all fold our hands, bow our heads, and ask for forgiveness for hating this kind of people. By repenting of, of, the, of that judgment against things that might be really ugly, actually, genuinely. The people who are created in the image of God. Repentance means today we decide to begin a journey of repentance. See, because that that judgment and hatred that has become so solidified in us. You know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one here? That judgment and hatred that's become so solidified in us didn't just happen in one moment. It, happened, it took years for that to form. And it's probably going to take years to let it melt in the image of Christ. Jesus, this, is, this, this story, was. I'm not using this, this word facetiously or sarcastically. This story was offensive to the religious people of Jesus' day. Who would Jesus offend by going, if he walked on planet Earth today, who would he go to? And you'd be like, God, Jesus, do you have to talk to them and love them and dignify them? Who is it for you? Here's another second point that we might just want to pay attention to, and this is a really important one. I couldn't figure out a shorter, more concise way to put it, so you can put it up there. Oh, no, I'm sorry, the, the, the last one. Are we trying to fit Jesus 
into our religious systems and worldviews and beliefs? Or are we trying to fit our religious systems and beliefs and worldviews into Jesus? That's the question. I'm going to say that again because I know it's confusing, but it's really important that we think about this. When we come to Jesus in the Gospels, are we trying to fit our... We, we come to Jesus in the Gospels, like we opened John 4 this morning, but we came to John 4 with all these religious beliefs, these Christian beliefs and, and ideas and systems, and then we engage with Jesus, and sometimes what the question is, do we actually submit our religious beliefs and our faith to Christ and fit our beliefs into Jesus, or do we try to fit Jesus into our beliefs? Because sometimes they don't match up. Does that make sense? See, friends, there's a reason that many in the church avoid the Gospels. It's because sometimes Jesus doesn't match up with our Christianity. And when we're confronted by that, we choose our Christianity over submission to Christ. This is super important, friends. It's, we all do it too. How many of us have said, have read in the Gospels, Jesus say something, you go, Jesus didn't really mean that, right? If no one raised their hand to that one, you'd be lying. Because all of us have come to this Gospels and saw something Jesus said and been like, that seems like a bit much. This is the reason. I've, we've been preaching through the Gospels in Matthew, Luke, and now John for more than a year, probably about 15 months. And there's been more than a couple times I've had to talk to someone after service when you guys have all left or I've gotten emails by someone who's offended by what Jesus had to say, Literally. Because it says here in scriptures this, but Je and then I say, well, but Jesus said this. And it doesn't match with their Christianity. It doesn't match with their religious beliefs. And so that's the question we're faced with. When we encounter Jesus, friends, and Jesus doesn't match up with our religious systems and worldviews and beliefs, which one gets the upper hand? Jesus or the beliefs that we walked in here with? So, uh, see, I hope that... Every time you walk in here on a Sunday morning, you're ready to submit everything in your world to the Lordship of Christ, including your beliefs. This could be scandalous, but it seems so simple. Are we Christ followers? See, Jesus Jesus, this is offensive in this culture because Jesus was breaking, literally breaking religious rules. Rules that they thought were inspired by God. Those stupid Samaritans. And Jesus comes and breaks those rules. Three of them, major ones. And all of the people in Jesus, all of Jesus' contemporaries were forced to make a decision. Is this the Messiah? And am I going to fit all of my worldview and beliefs into following this person? Or am I going to try to fit this person, the Messiah, Jesus, into my worldview so that it matches up? We usually choose the latter. Oh, if I see something in the Gospels I don't like, it's okay because Paul said this, so I'm going to fit Jesus into that Pauline box. I think it should be the other way. And I don't think 
I think when we, when we say that or, or think that, we're not reading Paul right, see, because all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, forward to Jesus, and all of the New Testament is pointing back to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and if Jesus doesn't fit with our worldview and our religion, we need to change our religion to fit more like Jesus, to look more like Jesus. It should be very simple. But we're just normal, average people who have been indoctrinated, enculturated, and we're willing to get offended by Jesus and change Jesus more than we're willing to be changed by Jesus. Lord, help us. Last thing that I want to point out, I promise it's the last thing. Oh, good, 11.05, not too bad. Now we talk about Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. John is making a parallel here, just so you know. What's the chapter just before this? Simple math, John 3. In John 3, we just studied it a couple weeks ago, who comes to Jesus? Nicodemus. Who is Nicodemus? A Pharisee. That means a prominent religious leader. A, a, an influential person like me, except way more important. And this religious leader comes to Jesus, seeks Jesus out. And when, when Jesus is teaching about the kingdom, it's like he's speaking a foreign language to this guy. He doesn't get it. He's puzzled, mystified. Then, in John 4, Jesus goes to a sinful Samaritan woman. All three of those words matter, remember? Jesus goes to her, and he begins to talk about the kingdom, and she eventually gets it. So much so that she evangelizes her whole town. We'll find it in the coming weeks. And friends, that, that is a remarkable thing. That's is an upside-down kind of kingdom that John is painting the picture of. The religious leaders don't get it, but this awful, sinful, rejected woman by the religious leaders, she's the one who gets it. That's the kind of kingdom that I want to be part of. That's the kind of kingdom that we're going to baptize someone into today. That's the kind of kingdom that we're going to come to the table in just a minute and humble ourselves and say, Jesus, this is all about you. It's not about our religious customs. It's not about our belief systems. It's not about our doctrines. It's not about even the scriptures. It's about you. This is what you get to submit yourself to. This is the person that you get to submit yourself to, this Jesus who comes and breaks all the rules in the best ways possible and invites us into that journey. So I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. Before we take communion today, I'm sorry, not 13, 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, remember who I was.
remember that I came and break all, broke all the rules in order to give dignity to a person who couldn't get it in the religious world that she lived in. Remember me. Remember that my people are the marginalized and the rejects. Remember that my kingdom is this upside-down, backwards kingdom that you actually have to just be born from above again, in born again to understand and to enter into and to participate in. Remember me. That's what we're doing here this morning. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This cup is the new covenant, Jesus said. A better and more beautiful covenant. Richer and fuller. Where everyone's invited to the table. Where redemption is the story of this kingdom. This is the kingdom that you're invited into this morning, friends, and this is the kind of table you're invited into where everyone is welcome. Because this is the kind of Messiah we have. Jesus, we, I want to submit myself more to you and the way you defied the odds, broke the rules, did all the things in order to prefer to people, particularly the rejected, marginalized ones. I want to learn from you, Jesus. That's my dream that my kids would just take, see you and love you because that is, I think, the best way to live. It's my dream that this church would take you seriously, Jesus, that we would truly be formed and transformed and reoriented around you, no one and nothing else. That we would be a person of the kingdom, this upside-down, backwards kingdom. And so this morning, as we step forward to partake in the Eucharist together, we're stepping forward and saying, this is the kingdom that I want to be part of. I want to lose myself and find myself in you, Jesus. I want to hide myself in you, Jesus. 